0: I think I said at the beginning, but if not, thank you all for being here tonight. Um, I'm not anxious. You're anxious. Um, Okay. So we say every week in our generosity prayer together that we want to be generous because we want to show the world what God is like. And tonight on this election night, I want to remind you uh, that it's not through how you voted that you show the world what God is like, but it's through your generosity, especially towards your enemies, that you show the world what God is like. We're living in uh, uniquely polarized times when identifying our enemies is pretty easy, at least politically. Uh, There's a chasm between our political factions in America. Uh, Here's a visual representation of what I mean. Um, Pew Research Center regularly conducts uh, what they call political polarization surveys, which sound awful. Uh, These are to measure the political makeup and divide between Americans. And you can see here, this is how we looked in 1994, which is just 26 years ago, not that long ago. Uh, This is the middle of Clinton's term, uh, Clinton's first term. And you can see the median liberal and median conservative or median Democrat, median Republican kind of boundaries are pretty close together. They're pretty uh, centered into each other. And the highest point of blue and highest point of red are pretty close together in the middle. Um, the distance between your average liberal and your average conservative is relatively close in 1994. Fast forward to the last time they did the survey, which is just three years ago in 2017. And look at that. Look at that uh, chasm that's between us. Look at the distance between the median liberal uh, views and the median uh, conservative views. And I don't know about you, but this is three years ago. This feels like ancient history. Um, it feels like things have dramatically gotten worse in three years. And so, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, the average, uh, the the chasm between your average political views in America is even more severe today than that picture shows. Um, It's hard to be a Christian in America these days. It's challenging, I think, to contextualize Jesus's commands about loving our enemies and our current reality. Um, our current reality that has distance between us that is so deep and wide. Um, but Jesus actually, in his day, operated within an incredibly politically and religiously fractured society. Um, Jesus had to contend with and interact with four different factions of uh, Judaism, so to speak. These are kind of like uh, political parties and kind of not. It's kind of, it, you get the idea. Uh, there are these four different groups. There are the Sadducees, who are sort of the liberal wing of Judaism. Uh, they're the ruling class, the aristocracy. Uh, They control the temple and the high priesthood, but they're oddly pretty secularized. Um, They collaborated with and integrated with Roman rule. They were most concerned about power. Then you have the Pharisees who are like the conservative wing. Uh, They are the working class. They're highly religious. They held to the Old Testament law really rigidly, um, so much so that they created laws that were stricter than the scriptures so that to make it even harder to accidentally or purposely break scripture. Uh, That's how the concern they were with breaking the law. They hated Rome. They secretly longed for uh, Messiah to overthrow Roman rule. They were most concerned with purity, uh, moral purity. Then we have the Essenes, and it's hard to know where to place them on a conservative or liberal scale because they're kind of both at the same time. Um, they're like hippies, but they're also like monks um, to some degree. Their answer to Roman rule and Sadducee corruption was to just get uh, to separate from society. Um, the the people who uh, maintained the Dead Sea Scrolls that we found hundreds of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years, <laughs> thousands of years later were Essenes. They were just out in the wilderness doing their own thing. They were heavily focused on community and communal purity. And then we have the Zealots. Um, the Zealots basically believed the same thing as the Pharisees, but they also believed it was their job to violently overthrow Rome. Uh, they, were, they advocated for killing all Romans and Jewish collaborators like the Sadducees. Um, and they were basically like the domestic terrorist wing of the Pharisees that were active throughout Jesus's life. So you have these four main groups. And then on top of it, you have oppressive Roman rule that kind of colors everything. Jesus existed in this complicated and divided and contentious and at times explosively violent environment. And it's against this backdrop that Jesus teaches radical love and forgiveness and grace, including uh, his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, in which he offers this, this challenge of extreme generosity found in Matthew 5 that we're going to be looking at tonight. In Matthew 5, Jesus says this, Here's an old saying that deserves a second look. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Is that going to get us anywhere? Here's what I propose. Don't hit back at all. If someone strikes you, stand there and take it. If someone drags you into court and sues you for the shirt off your back, gift wrap your best coat and make a present of it. If someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice the servant life. Say someone forces you to go one mile. Go with them two miles. No more tit-for-tat stuff. Live generously. Live generously, even towards people who hate you. Live generously towards everyone who wrongs you, everyone who hates you, even those who actively oppress you. Your response is to be generous and loving. Obviously, this is completely radical. Um, Jesus here is undoing essentially millennia of understanding of what justice looks like. Um, up to this point, the idea of, of a just response to someone doing something wrong to you was captured in the idea of lex talionis, or what Jesus says, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. This principle stated that um, you could only retaliate, you could only respond in kind to someone wronging you. So if someone takes one of your sheep, you can only take one back. Um, because we know the natural human tendency is to escalate our response when someone wrongs us. So if someone steals one of our sheep, we take four of theirs. Then they steal ten of ours, and then we just take all of their sheep to just end the whole thing. There's a constant cycle of escalating retaliation until one side is completely eliminated. And Lex Talionis says, you can retaliate, but only to the same degree that you were wronged. When it first came about, it was really progressive, and it, it kept the world moving and helped prevent escalation and violence. But Jesus is now saying, that's not enough anymore. It's not enough to retaliate in kind to our enemies. It's not even good enough to just not retaliate against your enemies. It's not good enough to just not hate people who hate you. That's too passive. Jesus is saying you need to do good to those who hate you. Go out of your way to respond with grace and generosity to people who hate and sometimes hurt you. To drive this point home even further, uh, Jesus includes that little detail in there where he says, if anyone forces you to go to one If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. The word for mile that Jesus used there is milion, which means a thousand paces in Latin. It's a Latin word, which is odd because this entire book that this is found in is written in Greek. Uh, Greek was the common language of the day. Latin was the language of Romans. We have a Latin word showing up in a Greek sentence. There's a Greek word that means a thousand paces that But Jesus doesn't use that. He intentionally uses the Latin word here because he's referring to this practice in which Roman soldiers or officials could force anyone in their subjugated countries to carry their luggage or their armor or just whatever baggage they had on them, anything that they wanted to, they could have, they could force anyone to carry that thing for them a thousand paces, um, which is what they considered a mile. So a Roman soldier could come along and ask you to carry their armor, which could be like 40 pounds or so. And you could had to carry it in potentially the hot sun for a mile for this overlord and oppressor that has been terrorizing your people for a hundred years. On top of that, there's no guarantee that as soon as you finish that mile, there wouldn't be another soldier or another official that would see you and make you carry their stuff. Another mile. It was a humiliating practice that was meant to constantly remind the people that they were under Roman rule. It was dehumanizing. And Jesus says, if one of these people force you to do this, do double. Jesus saying this isn't just like a cute illustration for his audience. It's it's a real life situation with a real life enemy. Jesus is saying the way to follow God is to be generous toward your Roman oppressors. Keeping in mind the factions that we talked about at the beginning, um, Jesus' followers that he's talking to are primarily made up of Pharisees and some zealots, people who absolutely hated Roman rule and and hated Rome and hated Romans themselves, to the point where they were actively promoting violence against Romans. These are Jesus' friends. Uh, We know for a fact that at least one of Jesus' disciples, uh, named Simon, not Simon Peter, but the other Simon, because Jesus had... Of the 12 disciples, he picked a bunch of guys that had the same name. We know the other Simon was a zealot. He was part of this uh, extreme violent faction that wanted to kill all Romans and kill all Jewish collaborators. And Jesus is saying the way to follow God is by loving your Roman enemies, not killing them. Many of his disciples, but especially Simon the Zealot, were following Jesus in hopes that he would be the Messiah who would eventually overthrow Rome, But potentially violently and restore the kingdom of Israel. So can you imagine how confused and angry they would be at Jesus saying this? And almost as if, as if Jesus is anticipating their anger and their rejection of this idea, he continues on by saying, you're familiar with the old written law, love your friend and it's unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer, for then you are working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. This is what God does. He gives his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish to everyone, regardless the good and the bad, the nice and the nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. In a word, what I'm saying is grow up. Your kingdom subjects now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously towards others the way God lives towards you. It's not enough to only love people who love you back. Instead, we're called to love everyone, even our enemies. The word for, used for love here in this passage is agape, which is the kind of love that God has towards us. Selfless love that actively works for the best of the object That's being loved actively works to reduce suffering and increase joy for the object of love. God loves us. Even when we're at our worst, God works for the best for us generously showers us with, with grace, even while we're his enemies. That's the kind of love that we're supposed to have. That's the kind of generosity that we're supposed to extend toward others, especially our enemies. So Jesus is saying Simon and all of you who want to kill the Romans Treat these Romans, these oppressors, the way that God treats you. Live generously and graciously towards these people who are your enemies in every sense of the word. This is, I think, really offensive and kind of insane. Uh, I think we we have heard the idea of love your enemy so much that it's sort of, uh, I don't know, it's lost its power to some degree. Jesus is saying, go out of your way to work for the best for for people that hate you. That sounds like a terrible policy. And honestly, I would never ever say this if Jesus hadn't. It's so counterintuitive and it's so countercultural and just seems like a bad idea. And it's also impossibly lofty. And yet this is God. This is the love that God generously extends toward us. This is the love and generosity that we're meant to. To reflect to the rest of the world. And it's what our country desperately needs right now. We currently live in a time that's uniquely difficult and, and in a time when it's uniquely countercultural to do this. Um, I think because it's become increasingly popular in our current discourse to adopt the posture of, as Jesus said, love your friends and hate your enemies. Here's an example of this. I've seen this all over the place and don't jump to any conclusions. Hang with me. This is this quote that says we can all disagree. We can disagree and still love each other unless your disagreement is rooted in my oppression and denial of my humanity and right to exist. How many of you have seen this? It's been like everywhere on the Internet. It's attributed to James Baldwin and James Baldwin is. Um. He was an artist and a poet and an author who was highly influential, influential in the civil rights movement. He was an incredible human being. Um, He had a bold and nuanced and unflinching perspective on racism and racial justice in our country. And um, I am a huge fan of his work. You should read everything that he's written. But this is not something he wrote. He never said this. This is a quote from a Twitter account called Son of Baldwin that started tweeting this out somewhere around 2015 and it caught on like wildfire. But Baldwin never said this. And it makes me so mad whenever I see it because it's literally the antithesis of what Baldwin believed and wrote about and fought for, which was radical love of his enemies and refusal to dehumanize them. The same thing that Jesus is calling us to. Uh, Baldwin writes extensively about this in his book, The Fire Next Time. If you're interested, you should check it out. But anyway, this is the posture in our culture that uh, that is quickly catching on. Um, It's even become a bastardization of this fake quote, I think, uh, which is, "If if, if I perceive that your thoughts or actions are directly or indirectly leading to my or others' oppression or dehumanization, then I'm justified in at least not loving you, But maybe even justified in just outright hating you. If there's oppression coming from you, I'm off the hook. Like, it's game on. I'm allowed to hate you. And then at the same time, we have influential voices on both sides of this chasm that exists between us uh, telling People in their own camp, those people over there are oppressing you. Those people are limiting your freedom. Those people want to control you. They're trying to strip you of your freedoms and oppress you. Those people hate you and everything you stand for. Those people don't think you're human. Those people don't want you to have rights. They don't want you to be free. They want to ruin your life. They'd rather see you dead. And the result is this deepening divide. The result is both sides dehumanizing the other. The result is the ending of relationships. Um, The result is this insanely contentious election. The result is whispers of civil war. Uh, The result is violence. And the result is people on each side actually killing each other. And it's in the midst of this deepening and increasingly violent divide that Jesus comes along and says, Love your enemies live generously towards them. This is how we show the world what God is like. This is how we bridge the divide between us. This is how we rehumanize each other, loving our enemies and extending generosity to people who hate us. Here's an actual quote from James Baldwin. Love takes off the mask that we fear we cannot live with, cannot live without, and no, we cannot live within. Love takes off the mask we fear we cannot live without and know we cannot live within. It's only by extending love to one another that we're able to remove the mask that we've placed on ourselves or that someone else has placed on us. It's the only way for us to remove and see past the mask that we've put on others to dehumanize them. Loving our enemies and actively extending generosity to people who oppose us and hate us. That's the only way for us to rehumanize each other. So what I want to remind and encourage all of us on this election night is that it's, it's not in how we vote that we show the world what God is like. It's through our generosity, especially towards our enemies, that we reflect God's love to the world. Regardless of ton, tonight and the coming days, regardless of what they result in, we have a responsibility as followers of Jesus to push back against this chasm of hate and dehumanization in our culture. We have a responsibility to be agents of healing and change and to stand up and be a voice for those who have no voice and to protect those who need protection, to reduce suffering and increase joy, seen most directly through how we love one another and how we love those who disagree and oppose and even hate us. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer, for then you are working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. This is what God does. He gives his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish to everyone, regardless the good and the bad, the nice and the nasty. In a word, what I'm saying is grow up. Your kingdom subjects now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously towards others the way God lives toward you. In highly contentious spaces, this kind of approach is not welcome. People will vilify you if you accept uh, this challenge and take on this kind of radical love and generosity. People will accuse you of all sorts of atrocities. People will abandon you. People will make themselves your enemy. And your job is to keep loving. To keep being generous across the chasm. Uh, As Paul writes in Romans 12, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't let evil get the best of you. Get the best of evil by doing good. This is our calling. If you choose to take it on, may the peace and the strength and the love and courage of Christ be with you as you do. Will you pray with me? God, I pray for um, conviction to be humbled uh, for each of us to be humbled and to the point of recognizing um, the ways that we have not, that we have fallen short of this, that we have fallen short of extending generosity um, to people who oppose us because it's maybe the hardest thing to do. And yet I believe it is the thing that is the most restorative um, and healing to a a church and to a culture that is um, moving farther and farther away from each other. God, I pray that um, whatever happens in our election, uh, that we will respond in generosity and love to each other and to the world around us. And that we will continue to show people what you are like through those actions. God, we pray that in our country, justice will reign and that you will be honored. Amen.